0: Some of you have heard this statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The the idea is every time a Christian's blood is spilled, it becomes the seed by which more and more believe the gospel. What is interesting is the context of that statement. Of course, it's not in the Bible. It was written by Tertullian, an early church father of the late second and early third centuries, who lived in Carthage, North Africa, often called the father of Western theology. Uh, Tertullian was actually the first to refer to the Father, Son, and Spirit as the Trinity, the triunity. Well, he lived during the height of state-sponsored Roman persecution against this new faith called Christianity. Christianity persecution had gone beyond ridicule. Christians were being arrested and at times put to death or martyred for their faith. Some other uh, church fathers like Polycarp and Ignatius, Justin, martyr, and Irenaeus had already suffered martyrdom. It's interesting, our English word martyr comes from the Greek word "martus," which means witness. You see, the connection is this, witness to the Christian faith, and you may become a martyr. You'll remember when we studied um, the book of Hebrews that the author said to his readers, you have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. The (laughs) implication was they would. Of course, that came under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, during whose persecution Peter and Paul were put to death under Nero Christians were arrested some dipped in flammable material and burned alive others were sewn into animal skins and thrown to the wild beasts in the arena or simply cast in with a hungry pride of lions to the delight of the spectators the stories are many and, and gruesome of Of course, Jesus said such persecution would come. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, back to Tertullian. He was a prolific writer, but this particular statement about the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church was not written to Christians. He was writing an apologetic, a defense of the Christian faith to the governing authorities, to the very ones carrying out the persecutions. In the midst of it, he says, you keep killing Christians and it's not working. Don't you understand? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For every Christian you kill, many more spring up in their place. And again, that, that statement is not found in the Bible, but it's true. It can be borne out in countries across our world to the present day. I mean, how does that work? Kill Christians and more and, and more become Christians. I would suggest that God has ordained it so. A couple of examples. Evangelical Christian missionaries first went to Vietnam in 1911, actually led by Robert Jaffrey, a missionary of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Others followed, and soon there were over a hundred missionaries, Christian missionaries in the country. But at that time, the growth of the church was slow. Then, during the Vietnam War of the 1960s, Christian missionaries had to flee for their lives. Several didn't survive and became martyrs. As I understand it, there were only about 100,000 or so Christians in the country at this time. Uh, Of course, you know the communist north outlasted the war and and Vietnam became a communist country uh, with, with very oppressive religious laws. World magazine writes... With the fall of Saigon uh, on April 30th, 1975, the new communist government kicked out foreign missionaries, that is those who were left, commandeered Christian schools and hospitals, and closed churches. Sounds familiar. Some Vietnamese pastors fearfully fled the country on U.S. military planes, leaving their flocks without shepherds. In fact, you may be interested to know, we have many Vietnamese people, uh, many of whom are believers in our own state of North Carolina, uh, many from the, the, uh, who are called the monks from the mountainous country. Now, without citing their entire history, fast forward to the present, where under communist oppression and control, it is estimated that there are over one and one-half million evangelical Christians in Vietnam. W- what happened? The blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. Uh, persecution and opposition caused the church to grow, such that Franklin Graham was able to hold a crusade there three years ago to a crowd of over 10,000. The same could be said of China another communist country. They have desperately tried to stop the spread of Christianity through the years to include closing underground churches, arresting, arresting and imprisoning um, pastors, actually martyring some. But current estimates place the number of Christians in China at over 100 million. More Christians in China than in the United States. That story could be told over and over in nations across the world. As I understand it, there is a Christian revival happening in Iran right now where converting from Islam to Christianity is punishable by death. You see, the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. Can I suggest that Christianity does not spread without the witness, sometimes painful witness, of God's people. It is the way God planned it. I I, I know, I I have heard uh, about dreams that people are having around the world uh, about Jesus, but even then, someone must tell them about the gospel and Jesus, as he was getting ready uh, to ascend to heaven, it, uh, said, for example, in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses, uh, Mar- Mar- Martus. witnesses to the ends of the earth. Paul said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of or about Christ. How can they... Believe except they hear it. How can they hear except the preacher be sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You see, the gospel must be proclaimed. So, share your faith, but know this it will cost you as it cost Jesus. This has been Peter's instruction and encouragement to his readers facing persecution because of their faith. We've taken a couple of weeks off for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but three weeks ago we saw Peter wrote in First Peter chapter three: "For Christ also suffered, that is, by dying, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God." Peter then went on to talk about um, what Jesus dying in our place accomplished, namely making us just and thereby bringing us to God. Remember, the greatest benefit, the greatest gift of the gospel is this. We get God. But that costs the suffering, indeed the very death of God's own Son. And it may bring ours too. Bringing us to our text today in our continuing study of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and following say this. Therefore, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. (laughs) For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles." Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in all this, they are surprised, or are shocked that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Peter told us in the last chapter, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. It is actually God's will that you suffer. For Christ also suffered by dying for sins. Then Peter took the very important aside to talk about what, Christ's suffering accomplished. Now he returns to his thought of of us suffering. Therefore, since Christ has suffered, so should you. It's another great text that, well, as we read it, you may have noticed, has some confusing parts, but it's actually a little easier than the last time. It should become clear as we make our way um, through. Here's the outline. We're going to see this. Choose suffering, not sin. Choose abuse, not sin. Are you getting the point? Choose the spirit, not the flesh. All of that because, and he sums it up, judgment is coming. And you will be proven right in denying sin, choosing abuse, and following Christ. You will be vindicated. It will be worth it. So look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Choose suffering, not sin. Therefore, in light of Christ's suffering unto death, since Christ suffered in the flesh, meaning since Christ suffered while in the flesh on earth, if you are wanting to follow in his steps, arm yourselves with the same purpose, uh, the, the purpose or attitude of suffering while you yourself are still alive in the flesh. In other words, he's saying this. Get ready. If you choose Christ... You choose suffering. It's a package deal. Now, the words arm yourselves also is a, is a common metaphor in the New Testament to speak of going into battle. And then most of you are familiar with Ephesians 6, where Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, to take the, up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we arm ourselves not so that we can fight each other, <laughs> to be clear. Or even unbelievers. He's not telling us to go into battle against unbelievers who persecute us. Remember, we're supposed to live such beautiful lives in front of them that they will be attracted to the gospel. But nonetheless, we will be attacked. So arm yourselves with the same purpose. The ESV has it arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. What thinking? Christ's thinking, who knew when he came that he would suffer he had told them up in Caesarea Philippi we're going to Jerusalem when I get there I'm going to be handed over going to be crucified but I'm going to be raised again the third day Jesus knew when he came that he would suffer that he would die for sinners now we're told you do the same you choose Jesus and you choose suffering so be ready Arm yourselves with the same purpose or thinking. Put it on like a piece of armor. You're going to suffer for the cause of Christ. Do that. Be prepared. Get yourselves into the right frame of mind. Later on, he's going to tell us, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Listen, the more I teach the Scripture, the more I see suffering is the way of life for believers. And the prosperity gospel is totally opposed to Scripture. The way of the gospel is not health, wealth, and prosperity. It is the way of suffering just as Jesus suffered. Now, again, we may suffer like Jesus as we follow in his steps, but we do not in any way accomplish what he did. His suffering was substitutionary in our place for our sin. His suffering purchased our redemption well, we suffer because, well, the, the, the world will not like our way of life. We, we'll see that in a moment. We suffer because they will not like the consequent condemnation of their way of life. When you, when you live a good life, it will expose their, well, their not good life. And the darkness does not like the light. Men are lovers of evil rather than light because their deeds are evil. We will suffer because they will not like the gospel. Because it exposes their sin. We will suffer because they will not like the the death of Christ on a cross. That seems like such foolishness to them. I could go on. The point is we suffer at the hands of unbelievers because they just, well, frankly, they don't get it. Further, they don't like it. But they are not the enemy. We, we, We live beautiful lives, so some will get it and believe. And that is my invitation to some of you. You don't get everything. You don't understand everything there is to understand about this Christianity. Perhaps you've even tried to read the Bible, and and you don't understand it. or some things that you don't like. Because Paul said the cross is foolishness to those who don't yet believe. Again, maybe you don't understand everything right now, but you know enough. That is, you know of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And I want to say to you that if you give your life to Him because of what He did for you, you will receive His Holy Spirit. And then, I promise, then you will begin to understand more and more this glorious truth. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, we set our purpose to do the same because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. that's confusing. Who is the he here? I mean, is it Jesus? Some say, well, well, no, that can't be right. Jesus didn't cease from sin because he never sinned. And well, you'd be right. The answer given is now that he has died for sin, he is done um, dealing with sin. He died once for all and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's true. That could be. But I don't actually think that fit, think that fits the flow of the argument here. Rather, Peter is encouraging us to suffer like Jesus did. Um, After all, the one who suffers like Jesus has ceased from or is through with sin so as to live the rest of time or from now on in the flesh while alive in this body, no longer pursuing the lusts of people, but rather the will of God that's interesting. I, I, I just invited you to believe, and now I'm saying this. If you choose to believe, then you are also saying no to sin. And you'd say, but, but, but sin is so much fun, maybe, for a while. But you know the ultimate damage that it causes. And besides, judgment is coming. he will talk about that in a moment. But how can it be said that we are done with or we have ceased from sin? Are are, are you saying that, that Christians are perfect, sinless? Certainly not. Very simply, it means the pursuit of or the character of pursuing sin is no longer a part of our lives. You see, the Christian, by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, is saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am done with sin. I will pursue Jesus. Now, again, Peter is not saying, again, as some have said, that we can somehow reach some state of sinless perfection in this life, that we can actually get to the point where we cease from sinning in this body of flesh. Now, that won't happen until one of two things happens. Either we die and are done with this body and receive new resurrected bodies, no longer dealing with the fall and our own sinfulness or or secondly when Christ comes back and we who are alive and remain at, at the coming of Christ will be changed remember in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and this corruption that is this corrupted body will put on a new body of incorruption and by the way this mortal body will put on a body of immortality and we will be like Jesus in purity because we will see him just as he is and we will be pure as he is pure Then. But while we won't reach a state of sinless perfection, we can say, in fact, we should say, we are done with sin as the character of our lives. We no longer pursue it. In fact, we fight against it, proving ourselves to be followers of Jesus. And so we spend the rest of our lives here not pursuing the desires or lusts of the flesh as was our former way of life. Rather, we pursue the will of God, which is holiness. And maybe you say, but, but what if I don't? pursue holiness as a way of life? What if, what if the pursuit of sin continues to be my lifestyle? I mean, I said yes to Jesus, but I still like my sin. Then I would very gently say, examine yourself to determine if you are truly in the faith. Because the follower of Jesus abhors sin and is deeply grieved when he or she falls into it. We are to be done with sin. All that brings us to our second point. Don't worry, the next two go much more quickly. Choose abuse, not sin. Or I could say it like this. By saying no to sin, you are saying yes to abuse. Again, it's a package deal. You see, Peter goes on in verse 3 to give us a vice list, those things which used to characterize our lives but no longer. In fact, he says rather sarcastically, the time is sufficient for you to have lived like Gentiles or unbelievers. You're done with that now. Time's up. Now, there is a fine but incredibly important theological side point I'd like to make right here. In the Old Testament, all people were divided into two categories, Jews and and Gentiles, or better said, God's chosen people and those not, followers of the true God and followers of false God, followers of the true God and those not. Here, Peter uses that same division, only incredibly he includes all believers in Jesus as the people of God. In other words, ethnicity does not matter. You don't have to be a Jew to be God's chosen people. Even as a Gentile, you can be a believer. You can be one of God's own. This is, again, incredible. The point is the world is still divided between two groups of people, between those who belong to God as believers and those who don't. But the good news is you can become part of the people of God, not by physical birth, by being born into a certain family or to a certain ethnicity. You can by spiritual birth. It doesn't matter, red, yellow, black, and white. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through faith in Jesus. Now, Peter basically says, you've had enough time to live like a sinner. You've been redeemed from that empty way of life. Remember in chapter 1, he had said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In other words, he says, you know better now. Be holy as God your Father is holy. And, And so here he gives us this vice list describing how these readers used to live and how, in fact, unbelievers now live. He lists six vices, three of which have to do with sexual sin, two that have to do with drinking, and one with idolatry. And actually, those all went together at this time. You see, sexual sin was prevalent at that time, and both socially and religiously accepted. And today, it is prevalent and socially accepted. Peter lists them as Sensuality, lusts, and carousing. Now, sensuality speaks of all kinds of sexual sin, illicit sexual activity, premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, and the like. It's prevalent. I mean, who today thinks that there's anything wrong with that? Lust speaks of wanting sexually that which is not yours to have. I want to say that this speaks loudly to our culture, indeed our world, and its sinful draw toward pornography. I would say to you that pornography is a plague worse than COVID, infecting our world and trapping people in spiritual death, which is much worse than physical death. I've had more people through my office than I care to admit who have been infected by this sin. You see, the truth is pornography is readily available and largely anonymous until you get caught. And and we may justify it by saying something like, it's virtual, no one really gets hurt. And yet Jesus said, the one who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. You need to understand that pornography violates the marriage covenant. Uh, Further, you need to understand how Pornography destroys your relationship with your spouse through virtual unfaithfulness. I, I camp on that for a moment because I believe it is a scourge in our world. It, is there, it deserves as much attention or more than a virus because its death is eternal. We are to be done with that. Carousing could be trans. Well, it could be translated in another way. and I'm going to use the word in this, in this uh, gathering today. It speaks of parties involving sexual sin. Let's say it like that, which is why I suggest these go together. While carousing often happen, uh, uh, such carousing often happen in the presence of excessive drinking and drinking parties. You know that to be true. Uh, alcohol, drugs lower the sexual inhibitions. And interestingly, this was done in the name of religion. You see how it goes together? Sexual, drunken, idolatry, and it was called worship. This idolatry was abominable by both its object and its practice. It it, it is worship in the most sinful of ways, and it was worship of false gods. Can you imagine inventing a a religion that would allow you to give in to your sexual vice? He says, we don't do that anymore. We, We don't do that. We are followers of Christ. And what is the result, verse 4, in all this, they, that is, unbelievers, still engaged in the sin, are surprised, shocked that you don't run with them in the same excess of dissipation that is in the same sinful vices. I mean, you used to, didn't you? What's wrong with you now? Many of you have faced that, being saved from a sinful lifestyle. Those still in it want you to join with them. What, have you found Jesus now and you can't have fun anymore? Holier than thou, are you? Talk about social distancing. And so they begin to malign you, make fun of you, ridicule you. And it becomes a short trip to persecution So what do we do? I mean, no one wants to be unaccepted. Obviously, we don't want to give in. We don't start sinning to be accepted. You see, Jesus and the new life we have found in him is far more important, infinitely more valuable. Jesus has become our greatest treasure, and we find in him greatest joy. The, the, the joy that we find in Christ is not to be compared to the vices of sin. And, and so, the, the old way of life is dead to us now. Well, while the flesh is sometimes, sometimes drawn to it, we see it for what it is, ultimately destructive. And so, we say no. But when we do, we'll be maligned, ridiculed, opposed. True. That brings us to our last point. We we choose the spirit over the flesh because judgment is coming. These are very hard words. Peter uses them as both a warning and an encouragement to us. The the warning goes like this. Don't be drawn back into your life of sin, demonstrating that you don't know Jesus. You stay faithful. Stay committed. They will malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's hard. It's a a phrase used to speak of God's universal judgment. Whether God the Father here or God the Son, lots of discussion about that. I'll let you decide. Here's the point. Judgment is coming. Death is not going to save you. All those living when the end comes and those having died will face Judgment, there is coming and accounting for all. Revelation makes it clear that there are two future resurrections. The first for those who have died in Christ. The second for those who have died without Christ. It's often called the great white throne judgment. The, those without Christ will stand before God and there will be no escaping. The books will be opened, books containing works like the list that we just looked at in this passage. And I want to say to you very gently that your sin will be laid bare. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, written by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, will escape. Christ's work of redemption on the cross will be found applied to our account. Those who have not believed and continued in sin will face eternal condemnation verse 6 as we close another challenging verse at first glance but when viewed in the context and the flow of the argument it begins to make sense for the gospel has for this purpose to avoid judgment has been preached even to those who are dead again confusing peter is simply saying this listen the gospel was preached while they were in the flesh still living Why? So they could believe the good news, choose Jesus and eternal life, say no to sin, and escape the coming judgment. Because people will be judged for their time in the flesh. So the gospel was preached so that they could live both now and in the future in the Spirit. You see... It's likely the non-Christians were saying, you guys believe the gospel. You commit uh, to this one God. You no longer live for the gratification of the flesh. You suffer, you are suffering all kinds of abuses, and then you die. What good is that? Verse 6, don't be dismayed that believers have died. They may be judged as maligned as losers in the flesh while they were still alive, but they will live at the resurrection according to the Spirit. See, it's really not that challenging to understand, but it's challenging to hear. He is not saying the gospel is preached to now dead people. It was preached to them while they were alive in the flesh so that they could live While condemned in the flesh by people who maligned them, they lived by the Spirit, and they will live by the Spirit in future resurrection. And that's what I'm suggesting to you. I'm preaching the same gospel to you now. Live by the Spirit according to the will of God. Do not give in to the flesh. Doing so results in eternal condemnation. Living by the Spirit according to the will of God now may cost you But the end result is eternal life with God, no condemnation. So arm yourselves with this purpose, even though it will cost you like it cost Jesus. But I am suggesting to you that it is eternally worth it.